Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest iteration of the Storytelling Breakdown Campaign Diaries. I am Ben Clemmer. Stephen can't be with us as we are recording this, uh, but I do say us because I have a guest back with me in studio. Uh, I am joined by Megan Bracker back on the podcast to continue discussing Ada's perspective on the adventures that the party is going on as they are about to board an airship for the first time for any of these particular characters. Megan, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we last left off, the party was in a city called Orbea. You had accepted a job to act as bodyguards for a gnome named Orner Weros, who had not only helped to resurrect your character after uh, being dropped to zero HP in session one, but it also uh, fitted you with a magic item called the Force Gauntlet, uh, which had a couple of cool abilities, if I'm recalling it correctly. We're now like 50 sessions removed from that in actual game, so details are a little fuzzy at this point. Uh, but all of you had arrived at the airfield. You had a code word that you were going to say to Weros, and he would accept your company to board the airship. And you last left off when we were talking about this, talking about Ada's perspective as kind of seeing a kindred spirit and Weros and wanting to make sure uh, that he would be as safe as possible as the party boarded. Yes, absolutely. Ada kind of designated herself as his personal bodyguard. Um, so anywhere he went, she would follow. Only very rarely did she ever step outside of his sight, partially also because he was on the lower decks most of the time and she did not want to be above decks looking down at that awful height. <laughs> that is true. So we got to play into Ada's personal fears a little bit. Uh, it's a character development thing. Uh, worked out very well in that regard. And as the party's boarding the ship, you got to meet the crew, which was an interesting cast of characters. The layout of the actual ship, uh, and Stephen, you and me were looking at this a little bit last time, to that point in the campaign was the most complicated map I'd ever put on the board. Obviously, as soon as you're breaking out a map in D&D, it's usually a combat thing. In this case, it was just, I want you to have an orientation for where you are on this boat. We had the upper deck and lower deck in mapped out detail. Multiple chambers above, captain's quarters. The forward part of the ship was where the steering column was located. And down below was where you had things like the mess hall, the guest quarters. You had the engine room in the back. And then you also had a bunch of cages in the middle section, which was where things started to get concerning once you guys got a few, maybe about a day's travel into the journey on the way to the city of Knotside. You were going to make a stop. Now, before we get to creatures that were brought on board, uh, just a quick refresher on the crew. The captain was actually uh, flying the ship remote using an automaton. So there was this metal kind of skeletal looking body uh, with a relatively polite voice coming from a character named Captain Cage on board the ship. Uh, the first mate did most of the talking. You met Tohaku, uh, who for my flavor description was basically a tall, kind of bulky, blonde haired man with a blonde mustache and beard. And then kind of this elaborate fur headdress and different uh, garments that he wore. You had the ship's uh, cook, Ifuni, and then the bosun, Kizar, and Avoxar, the quartermaster. And 
this is where having the map was especially helpful, at least to me as a player, because we have a much bigger cast than we have ever had since the first session in the tavern, really, where we, there's so many people to interact with. And they're all on the boat with you and are going to be there for a while. So there's plenty of opportunities to explore, get a tour, see different spaces, have different interactions. And just as you guys were kind of getting settled into, okay, there's the five of us, there's Weros, and then there's these crew members, we added even more characters to the group. We had a pair of zoologists as well as uh, a couple of hired hands uh, helping to load these creatures onto the ship in the village of Pontmar. And this was where you realized how much cargo was going with you to Knotside. And that cargo took the form of a lot of creatures that past a certain point would have a kind of terrifying cumulative challenge rating. Uh, we had several owl bears, I think a bullet, an axe beak, a couple of harpies, a pair of manticores, a hook horror. I mean, it was not good. Like any of these monsters met in isolation, especially by a, a level two party, uh, it would be a little terrifying. And I think we had kind of a moment of this doesn't look fun to the new players who just don't like seeing a whole bunch of monsters all at once. And then for you being one of the veteran players, you understood the gravity of what you were looking at in that situation. Oh, yeah. And it was so funny to see the range of emotions on everybody's faces. Like, of course, Luris is just fascinated by all the creatures, wants to know what they are, what they look like. And meanwhile, in my mind, I'm just like, oh, dang, oh, dang, we're going to fight these. <laughs> and they were all sedated when brought on board, and then they were put into small but comfortable for a short trip cells, basically, uh, to be brought to Knotside. And during the process of them getting loaded on was when we got to add another creature into the mix because it was discovered that a hole was burnt into the side of the ship, a small one. But uh, one of the zoologists was not pleased to see that this had happened and was well aware of what was probably on board as the rest of you uh, followed these small ashy tracks through the bottom part of the ship towards the kitchen and you met a new party member, which is not surprising, given how adorable the creature was. And I believe everyone would probably agree in the party, this is our favorite party member of all time. <laughs> so we introduced a hellhound puppy into the mix. The puppy's name is Pact. And it was a stat block that I found online, but then realized, okay, we have a fun opportunity to introduce this character. And then possibly... Just the pairing of Noreen, the tiefling, with the hellhound puppy, and then Katie having her puppy in real life. It was just kind of an adorable match. And I think not long after discovering Pact, the boat was in the air, and you guys were continuing your journey uh, south towards Knotside. I think just the moment where we found him was just everybody immediately latched onto him and were just like, okay, he's ours now. I don't care who he belongs to or where he came from. He is ours and he's not going anywhere. And we were so very relieved when you actually let us keep him because I believe, if I remember correctly, his previous owner was very eager to get rid of him from so all the destruction that he caused. The uh, background was basically the zoologist had purchased 
three hounds of sorts, like what we think of in the more traditional sense, and had ended up with four because whoever sold her the hounds included the hellhound puppy free of charge. And uh, so at that point, it was just a matter of, okay, who uh, wants to take this little guy on? Uh, Because while adorable and rendered beautifully in the artwork for the campaign diary by Michael Ganser, uh, standing, of course, uh, at Noreen's feet, also a little terrifying, uh, depending on what he decides to do. Pact can kind of set fire to everything in sight. So it's just a matter of keeping the ball of energy that is a puppy contained and not letting him burn everything to the ground. Yes, and especially as we see later on, we come up with some rather creative ways to both minimize and enhance his destruction. That is fair. Oh, my word. Things eventually took a turn, and this is where I kind of had to play a shell game with you guys because you guys spent most of, I think, the evening of the second day of travel either in the mess hall or in the guest quarters that was adjacent to it. Guest quarters oversells it a little bit. It was basically a small room with like one curved wall in the lower deck that had a bunch of hammocks strung up in it. The other one across the hall looked much the same. So not the most comfortable surroundings, but again, short journey. After dinner, Weros had kind of taken ill and was staying in the room, which didn't raise any red flags initially, and meanwhile, things were happening in the background. As both of the zoologists were dispatched by the hired guns, as well as one of the crew who turned out to be a turncoat, the way the party discovered, okay, we've been double-crossed, was the realization that Weros was the one actively controlling things behind the scenes, and a bunch of things happened simultaneously. And this is a scene I remember very vividly because I went into the moment originally like, oh, this could be a potentially wholesome scene where like, I forget who it was brought Wero's soup because he was supposedly ill and Ada was hanging out with him tinkering and he was tinkering a bit too in the bunks. And I was like, oh, okay, this will be a bonding moment, a character development moment. Oh, no. <laughs> her gauntlet decides to go haywire at his command. (laughs) Yeah, that was the first of many moments in quick succession that uh, threw us into initiative. Between the gauntlet malfunction, the presence of a few other automatons, because the body that Captain Cage uses looks more humanoid, but there were these older models, many of which were just small and actually kind of partially designed as explosive devices, so they start moving. They're following the two hired henchmen, along with Avoxar, the ship's quartermaster, who came in with a crossbow at the ready, pointing down into the guest quarters. And I think... Oh, right. And then the largest problem of all was this relatively sizable, rusty, old metal golem creature that was an old rusty automaton, but it was the size of a huge creature coming up onto the deck from below. And so we had a whole bunch of problems all at once, and it was just a matter of how the party was going to react to this. And if I remember right, our party was kind of scattered because it was me and Delilah in the guest quarters, but everybody else was kind of scattered throughout, if I'm not mistaken. I think 
many were above decks. That sounds right. Yeah, you guys were spread out a little bit. You were starting to investigate because I think there had maybe been one disappearance at least because there was a crew member or zoologist unaccounted for. And then once it became clear, okay, there's been violence on board the ship and we may have a problem. And you got some information from from an unexpected source. Uh, And I don't think Ada was in on this interaction given you were uh, pretty much glued to Weros throughout. But one of the witnesses who was able to provide some information was one of the manticores uh, whose uh, name is Gone. And he was a fun character to voice and emulate and uh, provide information even though I don't think anybody in the party felt they could 100% trust him. Oh, no. And I believe that was Gorg and Noreen who were talking to him. That was a very ominous scene I remember listening to because you did his voice so very well to be so both conniving and also, like, smooth so that he was, like, this very charismatic but, like, clearly you don't trust this guy kind of a character which having that interaction with our barbarian was rather (laughs) funny to watch but also very nerve-wracking i'm trying to think of what i even did for him it was probably something like my name is gone and just very slow very deliberate kind of raspy oh my goodness the way things took a turn you guys were outnumbered But you did have some help in that while one of the crew members, the bosun, was dead and one was a turncoat, the three remaining crew were more than happy to fight for their ship. So you had Captain Cage as well as Tohaku and Afuni still on your side. And I remember, like, for as dark as the initial opening beats of the fight were, it was cool to see, oh, the ship's cook just came out of the mess hall wielding a scimitar. (laughs) And then Tohaku is running to his room to get his longsword, but it's going to take him like six rounds in the combat to even get it. (laughs) But he's trying. And I think, honestly, the cook was the most fearsome of them all, considering she had tamed Gorg by him intruding on her kitchen earlier and when she was only armed with the spoon. So with scimitar, that was terrifying. (laughs) And then Captain Cage, as soon as he realized what was happening, threw the ship into a different course and locked the heading. So Weros couldn't hijack the ship towards a densely populated city like Knotside. And at that point, the battle is on. And I think one of the most significant shifts in the dynamics was a result of me misplaying Pact's fire breath ability. Because I didn't realize, let me put it this way, still very new DM here. Like this was like my sixth session or sixth or seventh session ever. And so I misunderstood recharge of six where you roll a die and it only works again if you roll a six to mean he can use it six times. (laughs) So maximum destruction. Yeah, Pact was (laughs) unleashing fire breath basically every turn. And those previously mentioned explosive automatons blew a hole in the ship and as well as uh, pretty much helped wipe out uh, the hired henchmen. And I don't think Avoxar was much longer for this world either once everybody got in on the fight. 
No. And I think that was the moment when I realized our ship was going down when you just drew this jagged hole in the middle of the top deck leading all the way down to the bottom deck where that explosion had taken place and it was massive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All these devices have fuses and then they blow up and then they have a range that's impacted by that. And then you have all of those going off simultaneously. We also had, if I'm recalling correctly, and this was a more specific part of Wearos' machinations, he had attached a device to the arcane stone that was the ship's power source. And if that device successfully caused a reaction or a catastrophic failure uh, with the engine, that stone could detonate and potentially wipe out the ship along with a lot of of other things for miles around. You guys were basically on a flying bomb until you successfully dealt with Weros and disarmed his device. If I'm not mistaken, he was wearing this headset to control everything. Yep. So he was able to fight while being in control of all of this. Mm -hmm. So Captain Cage went automaton versus automaton against the old giant rusty robot that had come up the stairs. Uh, The rest of you also dealt with the crew, but I think, again, relatively handily. I think Siv still carries a scimitar that she got in this fight from one of the fallen uh, henchmen. And you guys got Weros on the ropes uh, at the front end of the deck and uh, realizing that he was not likely to win the day or not really planning this mission with a, yes, I'm going to come out of this on the other side plan, he proceeded to leap over the side. Yes. And I believe that was a big moment for Ada too, because she had been going full rage mode ever since her arm had turned against her because that had been his gift to her. And so that betrayal eventually led to her dueling him one-on-one right before he jumped. And that was such a poignant moment. None of us expected it at all of him just jumping and at that point I think that I can't remember exactly everybody's reactions but I think there was a moment of just silence for a second because we were all just in shock (laughs) and the villain got off the boat the boat itself was still in peril so you guys had to quickly rush below deck and there were a number of fairly high dc checks in the module but between your arcana and Noreen's, uh, your investigation, and I think a couple of other successful skill checks, I think Delilah's sleight of hand also came into play. Uh, you guys were able to successfully detach Weros's device uh, from the engine core that basically would have turned the thing into a bomb. Now, that said, the ship was still compromised enough that this thing is not going to be landing And once you guys returned to above deck, you discovered that the giant rusty golem as well as the captain's automaton were both destroyed. So there's no salvaging either of these things. The fight is over on the top of the ship's deck. And now it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, how do we get off of this thing before it crashes and everybody dies? So the five party members plus Pact plus the two remaining crew... Tohaku and Afuni, you guys had to get creative. And I recall a lot 
of hammocks and bed sheets getting tied together yes. in an effort to build a rope that could descend you guys safely down uh, into the snowy surroundings below. You were flying into the mountains at this point. Yes, and I think that was such a funny moment after all the intensity of the previous battle and the fact that we're crashing down into the mountainside. And here we are as players just arguing about the best way to cushion our fall. We're throwing mattresses out the bottom of the ship. We are tying bed sheets and hammocks together. We're arguing over who should jump down first in case the others land on top. I believe Delilah landed on top of Gorg at one point. And He's gonna it be was fine. a whole big mess. <laughs> but we made it. We managed to survive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. The ship crashed in the mountains beyond. You guys had to descend to try to get out of the terrible conditions surrounding you, the snow and the cold. And this is where we got to kind of part three or maybe four in the Weros journey. But this was the part that was not in the module at all. There was a journey down the mountains before realizing you are most certainly not alone in this territory. Looking at it now, I pulled a couple of elements from a couple of different pieces. I heard Matthew Colville talk about a module called the Caves of Chaos. And I looked that up, and it's much older than 5th edition. And so I was looking through it and going, okay, that seems cool and a little complicated. Let's simplify this a bit. I pulled a map that I realized later was actually the largest map from the Lost Mines of Fandelver. You guys are continuing to descend this mountainside, and then you run into several creatures, quite a lot, actually. Found yourselves in the midst of, in terms of leading this group, an orc leader, a hobgoblin captain, and a goblin chief riding a warg. (laughs) And they had with them many other orcs, hobgoblins, and goblins in an army together, and they were actively laying siege to another orc faction that they were trying to bring under their banner. And that faction had holed themselves up in a location that would become known as Cold Forge Cave. So the mission given to the party was fairly simple. They had you guys surrounded with hundreds of other creatures still in the mountains. The full frontal assault on the caves was not working. So the party was basically told, you need to help us blow a hole in their defenses and we will let you pass. Otherwise, it's probably being their prisoners or death were the most likely scenarios. So you guys joined up with them to work on blowing up these wooden fortifications built at the mouth of the cave. Delilah had to go in, basically pulling along this barrel of black powder that would be used as a bomb to blow this thing up, made enough stealth and sleight of hand checks to successfully pull that off, and then everything descended into chaos. Oh, yes. Never have I appreciated our ninja rabbit more than that because that was an impressive level of stealth checks going through there and 
Like we were all just waiting in suspense, watching her go through while we were just basically sitting outside the cave waiting for the explosion to happen. Yeah. Anytime you have a moment like that in a session, there's the inevitable like, do not push this button. Yes. (laughs) And just the energy of that going, okay, this is going to go so badly. Somebody put tape over the death button. (laughs) It's always fun just from the DM perspective. Like there's some aspects and I think this, some of this comes from Steven and I both being fans of works like the Lord of the Rings where you have very clear good faction, evil faction and not much gray area. That said, it is fun to introduce gray area in Dungeons and Dragons as you guys went into the cave, you eventually encountered the chieftain for the orcs that were holed up and realized it might be time to switch sides or potentially help them escape. And it helped that even once that cave was blown open, the orcs holed up there were more than holding their own. The numbers advantage that the orcs, hobgoblins, and goblins brought to bear wasn't doing them much good in a bottleneck as well as much more familiar territory for the orcs they were going after. Plus, I was rolling checks to kind of see how the battle was going on either side as you guys advanced through the caves, and the orcs held up there were doing fine. It was very interesting the way that the dynamic shifted in our tone as we were going through, because, of course, at first we're going in, like, sword swinging, being like, okay, everybody who attacks us is going down. Like, we don't trust who sent us in here, and we don't trust who we are running in towards. And, like, I very much appreciated those little moments of dialogue to be like, oh, great, we might have messed this up, but we could probably still salvage this, and you were definitely helping us gear up for that, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A couple of things happened once you guys got into the cave that changed the color of the situation for sure the first was you were told by the orc the hobgoblin and the goblin leader that they were trying to bring this orc faction under their banner and the orc faction was led by this stubborn old orc chieftain named kardok who refused to yield and would only see uh reason through the strength of an enemy able to take him out and you didn't meet kardok but you did meet kara his daughter, the current orc chieftain succeeding her now pretty old and sickly father. So the horde was feared maybe more so through reputation that said Kara was more than holding her own in the fight and in leading the horde against the attackers. So you had an opportunity to see this orc chieftain just wants to get her people and her father to safety. So that changed the perspective on things. You guys also managed to get away from the chaos of the fighting. You went deep enough into the caves that you found some chambers that were not actively a part of the clash, and you got to explore a little bit. I'm trying to recall order of events. I believe you guys explored a few chambers, and then you got closer to a particular area with an aura you were detecting. Just finding what was giving off that aura proved to be way more difficult than initially anticipated. Yes, definitely. Because I remember doing an arcana check 
And it was just like this distant light of sorts. And we were just kind of trying to figure out what on earth this thing was and being so very stubborn about getting to it. And as you continued along, this was a scenario where (laughs) the party, you guys had the time and the opportunity the dice just decided to make it take longer because in the process of trying to unearth whatever was giving off this magical aura, I think Gorg had at least two natural ones, uh, which when you're trying to dig for some sort of artifact, cause cave-ins, <laughs> which was not fun. <laughs> so the barbarian is actively trying to unbury himself as well as unbury whatever you guys ended up finding, and Gorg happened to find a hammer that he has been using ever since an old dwarven warhammer called Siegebreaker. I think that thing is probably the oldest magic item carried by any of the party members, maybe even through to this current point we're at in the campaign. Having it come out, like, for a while there, we weren't even sure if it was going to be able to be pulled out of the rubble or worth all of the many natural ones that were being rolled and the damage being done by falling rocks. Did Gorg crit? I feel like he might have uh, also gotten a 20. I believe so, yes. Because I think that flipped the script. It's like, oh, okay, never mm-hmm. mind. Gorg has this now. Yes. You found the hammer, and you guys also managed to find a central section of the caves. I think this was also where you ended up having your conversation with Kara. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just being able to have all sorts of fun in terms of the narration and describing the space that you were in, you found this old anvil and dwarven forge, not a sponsor, that you were able to bring to light using this old dwarven hammer smashed against the anvil. I think I gave you guys like a riddle or something that eventually you realized, oh, this is what it takes to get this thing going. And now our artificer has access to a forge. And I believe the riddle was something to do with the um, siege breaker singing in the ancient forges or something along those lines. Let me see if I can find it. This would obviously sound so much cooler in the original Dwarvish, but this is what you guys were given. In darkness low and caverns deep, the forge's cold is only sleep. Siegebreaker's strike speaks fire's name. Our weapon's wrath birth a new flame. So once parsed out and you guys realized, oh, Siegebreaker is this hammer. Bang, bang, bang. The forges are up. And it was just fun to kind of watch you guys piece that all together once you had all the parts and the information you needed. Because I think you found the riddle, then detected the aura, brought the hammer back, and then were able to get the forge going. Yes. And in comes what I still hold to be Ada's most epic moment of artificer power, where she forges her first largely magical item and she creates for herself a rune arm to replace her old gauntlet that had betrayed her before and this thing when you sent me the notes on it I got so very excited because it added so much versatility to my character especially as the runes Throughout battle, I will admit I mainly use the fire one because who can resist the flames? It's come up a lot. (laughs) Yes. 
that was an epic, epic moment that makes me think an awful lot of Thor forging his axe in Avengers Infinity War. It very much makes me think of that moment. (laughs) Yes, that's what killing you means. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wait, did I I sent you the battle engineer subclass? I thought you sent it to me because I... Uh, you sent me what the arm, what, I sent you one that was similar and then you sent this one back to me. Oh, um, okay. I think that's what it was. But I definitely remember reading and be like, this is perfect. <laughs> Credit to Michael Ganser for the artistic rendering uh, for the artwork of Ada that accompanies the podcast because it goes all the way up the shoulder, uh, up her right arm, and then has the three different stones, the fire rune, is the orange one. Um, And then there is a lightning rune, which I believe is the purple one. And that's the one that she is firing up in the artwork itself. And then her last one is a frost rune. And I believe that one is a light teal blue, which I believe I have yet to use the frost rune, actually. The opportunity came up, actually, when we were in that cave, but... I believe once you enter combat with the rune arm, you have to stick with the first rune that you choose at the beginning of battle. And so the fire rune has definitely been the one of choice for its versatility, but lightning has come up a few times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And so you have this awesome magic item. You guys also, because this was an ability tied to your subclass, you had leveled up, I think, once you guys crash-landed. And so you were level three, but at least in your case, you didn't have the full kit built out yet. So it's like, okay, there needs to be a spot here where this can happen. And so you were able to build the rune arm in the confines of Cold Forge Cave. And then an encounter that realistically was probably scaled to be dangerous for level two, you guys came out of the cave at level three, uh, providing a distraction. Basically, you and the orc horde that had holed up there were going to go in separate directions and with the chaos that had been caused by the battle in Cold Forge Cave definitely not going as well as the orcs and the hobgoblins the goblins thought it was going to, uh, you guys had a small scouting party that you had to break through, and then you were off to the races. Because uh, I think I put some goblins, a couple of wargs, and some hobgoblins out in front of you guys, and you guys pretty much mowed them down. Yes. We very quickly carved a path. I think that was one of the most shockingly brief battles we had had up to that point, especially for the number of creatures that were present. You guys continued down the mountainside. You had a journey in a few different directions that you could possibly go. So this is where, and this is a concept that Stephen and I think have talked about a little bit, and maybe not always on the podcast. You hear a lot in the world of D&D the concept of railroading versus a sandbox and I think really you're constantly using both at least in an ideal circumstance for a DM because once you guys have kind of picked a path okay this is what we're doing I'm going to build this out we're going to be on this train for a little bit at least if you guys decide no we're not doing this anymore we're going in a different direction okay that becomes part of the story I improv to the extent that I don't have things prepped or we take a break or do whatever we need to and keep things moving It's less about railroading and more just giving you guys as many different track options within the confines of the sandbox so everybody's happy. 
And this was definitely one of those moments because when you guys left Cold Forge Cave, you had a few different options of where you could go. If you went east, you would have ended up in this village called Barnamouth, which was, of course, the starting point for another adventure, uh, which also even up to this present point in the campaign has gone untouched and unplayed. <laughs> so we'll see how things have progressed there, maybe at some point, who knows. If you went north, you would have ended up in a village you guys had heard about from Dolhov because you would have ended up in Gilder's Hold. And if you guys went south, which is what you decided to do, you would have ended up at a larger town off this channel near the coast called Hopewell Harbor. You guys opted to go south, which would bring you to Hopewell Harbor after a somewhat long journey. And we will pick up with everything that would unfold in Hopewell Harbor in a future episode. Megan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts, especially if they play D&D. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog and past episodes at storytellingbreakdown.com, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church with campaign diary logos provided by Michael Ganser and Jeremy Stroop. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shaw Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been a Storytelling Breakdown Campaign Diary. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs> <laughs>